0: Congratulations on making it today. As I was uh, researching and and looking through uh, information about Father's Day uh, in preparation for speaking today, uh, Father's Day is the least attended holiday for churches. The most attended holidays, depending on uh, the church, are either Christmas, Easter, Easter, Christmas. Uh, And then the third most attended holiday is Mother's Day. So Mother's Day way up at the top uh, of church attendance, Father's Day uh, at the absolute bottom. So we'll talk about why that might be the case uh, today, but um, I'll uh, give you a few Father's Day stats or a few, I guess, not really Father's Day stats, but father, uh, Father-based stats. Uh, I'll ask you a couple questions so you can holler out um, some numbers and things like that. So what we're going to open up with is some um, survey data from the Pew Research Center. Uh, and all of these surveys were conducted between 2015 and 2018, depending on the stats. Okay, Um, so mothers and fathers were asked, um, if parenting was extremely important to their identity, and this was like one of those one to five, moderately important, extremely important, not important, that kind of stuff. So this would have been like the five out of five. Parenting is extremely important to your identity, 58% of mothers, said that parenting was extremely important to their identity. What percentage of fathers said that parenting was extremely important to their identity? More than one. Ten, good guess. Thirty-five, fourteen, good guess. Fifty-eight percent of mothers said that parenting is extremely important to their identity. And fifty-seven percent of fathers said that parenting was extremely important to their identity. Um, We now have more fathers who are choosing to stay home uh, to be uh, with their children. In 1985, 3% of stay-at-home parents uh, were fathers. Uh, In 2016, 8% uh, are stay-at-home fathers, so... um, We see that ticking up a little bit more. Um, What percentage of dad... Well, actually, let me phrase it like this. 35% of mothers said that they spend too little time with their kids. Most often uh, using work obligations as the reason why they can't spend more time. 35% of mothers said they spend too little time with their kids. What percentage of fathers said that they spend too little time with their kids. 60, 38, 45, 63% said that they spend too little time with their kids and just like mothers, work obligations uh, were cited as the most common reason why they were not able to spend enough time. Um, And I'll finish with this stat. 51% 51 of mothers... Again, this is like the five out of five, said that they are doing a very good job raising their children. So uh, decent job, not a good job, that kind of stuff. So the highest rating, 51% of mothers said that they are doing a very good job raising their children. What percentage of fathers said that they were doing a very good job? It's not 100. (laughs) I can see why you would say that. (laughs) 55, 60... 75, uh, it's actually 39% of fathers think that they're doing a very good job. So uh, I specifically went through these and mentioned that kind of stuff because I got all of those numbers completely wrong. (laughs) So I thought, uh, like many of you, that dads would think, you know, they're doing a very, of course I'm doing a very good job. Is there a six out of five? Can I pick that? Excellent job, best job ever, greatest dad, you should see my coffee mug and my matching shirt. Uh, so it turns out maybe uh, dads are more aware uh, of the fact that they're uh, you know, just doing an, an adequate job or maybe it's you know, a reflection of their uh, insecurities when it comes to raising children that, that they're not as high uh, when they rate themselves for a very good job of raising their children. Um, so there is a new emerging field of study In science, and it is fatherhood. Uh, When you reflect back on what fatherhood was, let's say, in the 1960s, the priority then was more about um, father as the figurehead. You know, he might uh, help a child walk play catch, ride bikes, stuff like that, but kind of the picture of what we see as the father then was the one who came home and maybe got his pipe and sat in his chair and read the paper, and everyone came to him and sat down, and it was like, let's listen to father dispense the information, and less of the expectations of a father now where you better be changing the diaper, and you better be picking up the kids, and all of those things that we see that are a little more common now, Uh, when... Aaron and I were first discussing, you know, having a kid and everything like that, I was going to be completely fine with, like, being in the waiting room, passing out cigars, but you you let me know when all of that's taken care of, and I'll come in and hold the baby and smile, and so, as you might imagine, that conversation went nowhere, Um, so I was way more involved than I would have ever imagined um, in that process, and we did, you know, birthing classes and all that kind of stuff, Um, so... When we look at fatherhood, when we look at how um, the expectations and things uh, have changed for fathers in the last 50 years, um, I think maybe it is more understandable that dads are a little unsure of if they're doing a good job. And if they're already worried about uh, not spending enough time with their kids, or if they're already worried about what the expectations are on them, then seeing themselves as doing a very good job Uh, might be more difficult. Um, Another study I read um, combined 25 different individual studies uh, to give this uh, summary data. Uh, An actively engaged father uh, has children who are less likely to drop out of school, less likely to end up in jail, less likely to engage in high-risk behaviors, uh, those ranged from uh, drug use to sexual experiences, They are more likely to have children uh, with high-paying jobs, more likely to have children that have a stable relationship with their eventual spouse, and their children have higher IQ scores. So all of that to say, that might not be the case for you. So if you didn't have a highly engaged father, if you don't know who your father is, if there are um, issues that exist Uh, with your father, none of these studies preclude you from being successful in life. But what we see is when we look at our society as a whole, actively engaged fathers, and I'm sure you would see these same stats if we were reading this in May, actively engaged mothers help to develop children and help to develop relationships that are more successful. So, we are going to look at some uh, information from Paul today in Ephesians, uh, and this is kind of a normal go-to um, for any type of family series or anything like that. Uh, I often have the opportunity to speak on Father's Day, uh, which you know is rather frightening to stand up here. Uh, and be a dad and talk about Father's Day because I certainly don't get it uh, right all the time. And so to stand up here and say, you know, this is what uh, as fathers we should do and then go home Sunday afternoon and screw it up uh, can be a little frustrating sometimes. Uh, but um, Doug and the uh, mission trip team are in Wales right now and, um, And uh, you can see on Facebook, they went to a a service today. Uh, And so I don't know the language of the um, song that they're singing, but if you listen to the tune, uh, it's Blessed Be Your Name. So uh, they're getting the opportunity to worship uh, with Christ followers uh, in Europe today and in other parts of the globe. So excited about that. Um, They'll be back, and we'll get a a wrap-up. Uh, explanation, and they'll tell us some uh, about the trip, but please remember to keep them in your prayers uh, this week as they wrap up and get ready to travel back. So we're going to be reading a little bit out of Ephesians 5 and then into 6. It is page 1176 and then on to 1177 if you are using uh, the Pew Bible, and we'll start with chapter 5, verse 25. Just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So one thing we see in those uh, verses is that fathers have a varied role. Um, We see fathers uh, being uh, the husband being the the husband to a wife. We see fathers as being the parent to a child or to children. And then we see fathers kind of holistically as being head of the household. If we look first at fathers uh, being the husband, being married to a wife, uh, the directions are to love your wife like Christ loved the church. So, um, that's often used in weddings and things like that. Um, And also, that's a ton of pressure. (laughs) So, here, husband, you're being married today, first day of marriage. All we need you to do is love her like Christ loved the church. So, just get it right all the time and never screw up. That's it. It's easy. So, um... You know, I read that, and I've read that numerous times, but today, thinking about Father's Day and, and thinking about a husband, I'm like, wow, that's a whole lot of pressure. Um, I am a little more intimidated by this process now, um, you know, but as I read it and kind of thought about it, it's kind of a similar directive to all of us, regardless of, of whether we're you know, uh, a husband that's married to a wife, as as followers of Jesus, it is our job, it is our goal to connect the people around us to Christ, and we don't do that by acting like somebody who is unChristlike. We do that by trying to share love. We do that by trying to listen to be someone who models for other people Christ's love and how. He would live our lives. We just did that series a few weeks ago. So um, I don't know if it's the whole misery loves company thing, uh, you know, but that's kind of the directive for everybody. So it's less pressure on me because I'm thinking, okay, everybody kind of has this similar directive. But when we talk about Christ loving the church, it says that he gave himself up for the church. And so that, you know, is is sacrificial love. And so I started trying to think about what are the ways that I sacrificially love my spouse. And they were super petty and unimportant things. Like, I turned off golf so that we could talk. Or, you know, I did these things that seem like Christ... Sacrificing for the church. Jay turned off the TV and talked to Aaron for 20 minutes. Like, when I'm making these these vast comparisons, and I'm like, oh, I'm doing a terrible job of of sacrificially loving. But uh, hopefully, none of you have been uh, placed in this position. We're not called to give our lives physically. Up for our spouse. Maybe that'll happen like in an alleyway somewhere or something like that, but what we're what we're called to do is to put their needs before our needs. And so that kind of ratchets down a little bit the pressure and makes me think, okay, maybe some of these small things are more significant than I originally thought they were when I compare them, you know, to Christ sacrificing His life for the church. And when I think about sacrificial love, really it's about getting rid of or lowering my priorities of what I want to do all the time and raising my spouses. And so, you know, uh, Doug has done a series where he did His Needs and Her Needs Um, We've had different groups that have done like the love languages books. There's different things that exist out there um, that can help you connect to your spouse in unique ways um, that are exclusive to you and them, but I think that for me, this may not be like this for anybody else, if I don't think through those little tiny things I see this Christ in the church comparison, and it's so big and so far away, I just kind of shut down, and I'm like, ah, I'll never be able to do that, so I'm just going to kind of do my thing over here. So I have to value those small things, the little steps that I take that are just microscopic sacrifices in the grand scheme of things so that I can see that eventually that does Mean something. That is a bigger deal than I think about it when I'm comparing things like my turning off golf to Jesus sacrificing himself. So if you are, like me, um, you know, scared of or intimidated by this huge directive of loving your wife like Christ loved the church, I would encourage you to to think through and to honor those small things that you're doing because those small things can still be significant, particularly when those small things are added together and particularly when there's something that you know that your wife or that your spouse values. So when we look at sacrificial love, I think we look at a significant thing of your spouse's needs before yours. What is it that they value and how can I make sure that I am meeting that need? How can I make sure um, that, uh, that I am modeling that lifestyle so that that's something that they are receiving love from? If you don't know what that is, I would encourage you to turn off the golf and find out. Um, golf's going until 10 o'clock tonight, so don't worry, there will be plenty of golf uh, to see. Um, but uh, as someone who struggles with communication... Um, it is definitely something that is significant and something that is needed uh, in order to build or in order to foster uh, a healthy marriage or a healthy relationship. Um, also, uh, we see husbands as fathers to children. Uh, and the uh, chapter 6 talks about um, don't exasperate your children. Um, and I think... Uh, that I've probably used this before, but uh, Aaron and I and uh, Emily and James are big um, Disney fans, Disney-aholics. We like to go uh, to Disney and and do the parks and everything like that. And one of the most frustrating things to me uh, that I think of um, when I hear exasperating a child is like, we'll be walking in the park. It's like, you know, 9 o'clock, 9.30, something like that. And a kid is like, uh, I want popcorn. And the parent's like, we're not stopping for popcorn. The lines are getting long. We've got to get to Space Mountain. Or we, you know, we've got to do something like that. And they're like, "Ah, I want popcorn. And then the parent's like, if you don't stop crying, we're going back home. And I'm like, it is 9.30. You have spent an hour and a half parking, paying to park, riding the tram, getting to the little place, riding the monorail, standing in line, riding the monorail, coming here, you're not going home. (laughs) And then the kid goes from crying about popcorn to crying about the fact that they're about to go home because they're crying about popcorn. And I realized, like, you can't you know, reason with a two-year-old and tell them, well, we're going to get popcorn later, but first, you know, all this kind of stuff. But things like these giant threats that you have absolutely no intention of being able to honor. When I think about exasperating, I think about really just, it's its more than like frustrating. It's going over the top, exasperating your children doing something that really gets them gets them riled up. Um, I was reading some of the the commentaries and and one of the things it talked about um, that I hadn't thought of. And so you know, kudos uh, to my parents because this was never really an issue for me. Was comparing siblings is like you're the smart one, you're the athletic one, you're the artsy one, and kind of boxing your children in, oh, no, no, you don't need to do that. You're, you're not like your brother. You, you're better at math. Or you're, you're better at drawing. Don't, don't mess with that. That's, that's not going to be good for you. Versus giving them the encouraging word or giving them the opportunity to try it. It may not work. It may be terrible. But they don't hear in their head, I can't do X, Y, and Z. Because when I was growing up, my parents said, this is what I do. This is where I fit. This is where I belong. These are my strengths. Anything outside of this, I won't be able to do. I think that um, my experience uh, as a teacher and then as uh, coaching sports uh, during many of that time uh, has made me uh, as a father more cognizant of, uh, discouragement. I think that, uh, I might know the outcome of something that one of my children are going to do is not going to be successful, but they are never going to hear me say that. I'm going to allow them to go through the process and potentially be unsuccessful and there to say, Hey, you know what, let's try it again next time. Or have you thought about doing this or providing other options. What, what I remember uh, hearing as a coach were parents that uh, drilled into their kids' heads what they couldn't do. Don't shoot from there. Don't try that. Don't do this. This is what you do. This is where you're best. This is where you're successful. And I think through that, and, you know, at, at that time I was, was not a parent and really was not even um, aware of it like I am now. And kind of reflecting back on that, I'm like, man, those, those words of discouragement, those words of you can't or you shouldn't really kind of frame a lot of how people see themselves. Um, you know, I get the opportunity to interact with many of my peers and, and people that are my age that are, you know, teachers or assistant principals and principals, and you see, as you get to know them better, some of the limitations that they have allowed their parents to put on themselves. Some of the things that they won't do or are afraid to do because of the voice that they hear in the back of their head when they go to try something new or, you know, go to do something different. And so, you know, I think about another way that we might see parents exasperate their children is by just smothering them. Like, they can't go anywhere, they can't do anything, they got to check in all the time, they have to be here at this time, in this place, with no other options. And again, that's needed when children are younger, but as they begin to grow, you know, you have to kind of expand those boundaries a little bit. And, you know, let me just openly say I'm the parent of an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, so my boundaries really haven't expanded very far. And I remember, you know, pulling out of Snow Hill Lane in a 1990 Ford Ranger that my dad had given me on my 16th birthday to go to the movies. And mom and dad are like, Mom's, like, walking down the street, and dad's like, yeah, you can't follow her, you know? And so, like, this kind of real, legit fear, like, I'm about to let that boy go on 295, and you know how people drive on 295. So, so boundaries, you know, have to expand and, and have to get bigger, otherwise... You see, you know, I mean, I'm sure we all know somebody at some point in our life that was just, you know, smothered as a kid, and then when they turned 18 and moved out, or when they went to college or something like that, it was just like wild. This is the first time I've ever been able to make any of my decisions. There's no ramifications. I'm completely in charge, and they have absolutely no idea how to handle that because everything has always been... Check this box, move this way, do this exactly as you're told, and now it's wide open, and you have all the options available to you. So in, in this directive from, from Paul, he, he starts out, and maybe he just knew you know, how, how guys are. He starts out with the negative directive. Verse 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I feel like if it were me, that if he started out and said, fathers, bring your children up in the instruction of the Lord, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I do that. And then he said, do not exasperate your children. And I'm like, yeah, I don't do that. But starting out, fathers, do not exasperate your children, I feel like is kind of one of those attention-getting statements, that I'm more likely to reflect on, do I exasperate my children, and then think of, bring them up in the training of the Lord. When we look at fathers kind of holistically, as as fathers as head of the household, I think that one of the most significant, maybe the most significant thing, is being the role model, being the one that is bringing them up in the training of the Lord. And there's a variety of ways to do that. I think that the most important and the most impactful and the the one that I remember and that, that kids remember is what do you remember your dad doing? When you think about your dad, what is it you remember him doing? Because in most cases, that is what's driving your thoughts. That is what's driving how you as a dad, how you as a father, how you as a spouse are acting. So dads, we have a lot of pressure Love your spouse as Christ loved the church. We also have a lot of pressure because really, you are modeling for your entire household how they should act when they get your age. Uh, We're trying to come up with summer activities and things like that that we're uh, doing with the kids, and one of the things that they're doing are these little bead activities I remember doing as a kid. There's like little plastic pieces that have the prongs that go up and you take different color beads and you put them on there and then you iron them. And it's like, okay, now you have a lifetime supply of places to put your you know, cups and your plants and stuff like that. Um, and so uh, we, we've been doing that and uh, Emily loves doing those things and James does them too. Um, but Emily, the other day, wanted Aaron... Uh, to iron them, you know, because they stick together, it's a little plastic. And she said, wait, mom, I have to go to the bathroom and then I'll be back. And I'm like, "What? Why, why does she have to wait to iron this thing before you leave? And she's like, because when I have kids, I have to learn how to be able to do it. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, you're eight. <laughs> um, but if, if she is thinking... That ironing little plastic designs, she has to learn how to do that so that when she has kids, she knows what to do. She's also looking at what I'm doing, and she's looking at what Aaron's doing, and she's looking at how we're interacting and loving each other, and how we're interacting and having conflict, and how I, as a father, am trying to lead and bring her up in the instruction of the Lord. And so it is my job, Dad's, it is our job to be the role model, to be the one that when our son looks up, he says, I want to be that kind of dad. When our daughter looks up, she says, I want to marry a man that acts like that, that speaks like that, that interacts with other people like that. So I don't mean to drop this huge, heavy weight on you. But I do think that it's significant if we reflect on the fact that these are our directives and not that attending church fixes those things. But if in fact Father's Day is the least attended church holiday of them all, it is important for us to reflect on our own lives and determine how we can do this better. And we can't do this better by trying harder. And we can't do this better by thinking of more summer activities. And we can't do this better by just really, really deciding that we want to do it right. We do it better by getting to the feet of our Savior and by saying, by myself, I cannot accomplish this. With my own desires, I will fall short 100% of the time. The only way that I can be the role model that I need to be is for you to be an active participant in my life. And so I would encourage you today, as I reflect on myself and my shortcomings and issues that I have, that you would spend time connecting, reconnecting, reflecting on the fact that it is strictly through the strength of Christ, it is strictly through the connection of with the Father, that we can become the fathers that we need to be. Let's pray.